Hi, I'm Emily. And I'm Kat. And we're Sorting Hat Chats. And today we're going to sort Avatar The Last Airbender, the animated Nickelodeon show from my childhood. In our Sorting Hat Chat system, we sort people into primary houses, which is why characters do things, and into secondary houses, which is how characters do things. We define the terms we're using here in a little more detail in our pilot episode, on our WordPress, and on our Tumblr. But in the meantime, let's get to sorting. I don't remember how we sorted Azula the first time we did this, but I get the feeling she's a Slytherin primary. Kind of similar to Aang, all of the times when she totally freaks out are when the people closest to her betray her. Which, for some reason, wasn't totally intuitive to me. I think maybe just because she presents so much um, with her secondary and we don't really see much decision making other than doing what her dad says. I also wonder if she's a little burned, you know, and that kind of also screws it up. The whole emotional mental breakdown at the end doesn't doesn't speak to someone who's been solid and happy in their way of going about the world. Right, because that's what it gets triggered by May and Tylee betraying her and that seems to for her really push her back into specifically then the time her mom also abandoned her and so she has this long line of like abandonment trauma and that's the sort of thing that breaks her yeah oh ursa right um and so she doesn't azula doesn't seem to love zuko in that way she wrote zuko off early he was never in her slytherin but her dad is. Her mom was, I presume, at least enough that being abandoned by her really shook her. Yeah, I have to imagine when Azula was really young, she was still close with her mother. But then when Ursa fell out with Ozai and the parents each decided which kid was evil and which kid was great, then, you know... Oof. Yeah, and then with, and it's interesting, but the reason why I think, because she, like, she has connections, so, but the reason why I think she's burned as a Slytherin anyway, because generally burned Slytherins just don't connect with people, she makes them very one-sided. It's about, sort of, in some ways, like, possession, and she's shook by betrayal, but she would also betray Nay and Ty Lee really easily. So she's expecting loyalty from them while only ever really giving loyalty to her father. And even then, it seems a lot more like fear and desperation than it does like loyalty. Yeah, well, Azula initially coerces Ty Lee into joining because I'm, if I remember right, Ty Lee said, no, I'm really happy here with my family in the circus. And Azula was like, cool, I'll burn down everything unless you actually do come with me. Um, yep. So starting off on that foot, um, and then later being confused as to why Tylee doesn't like her and <laughs> <laughs> betrays her. Yeah. Unfortunately, that that does smack of burned Slytherin primary. Right. She's trying to, like, artificially create the bonds that she would have as a healthy Slytherin, that she would have as someone who was bonding and giving loyalty and having these tight-knit connections. And instead, she tries to create them using fear or power or leverage the same way her father does to her 
Yeah, because then she feels like she has control over it and control over them. And then they can't hurt her. She can just hurt them. And that makes it safe. And then the, the thing that shakes her is when she realizes even that that fear and that um, power dynamics that she's using, they aren't enough. They're still going to leave her. Yeah, because that's not that's not real. It's just... It just looks like what she wants, but she can't actually have what she wants unless she actually, you know, approaches it authentically. Her, her mother didn't love her enough to stay, and May and Tylee didn't fear her enough to stay, and she doesn't know what she could possibly have left to offer. So we think she's burned Slytherin primary. What about her secondary? Probably also Slytherin secondary? Slytherin secondary and not burned at all. She's so confident in her abilities and her power. That's not a place she has any doubts. But it's all improv. It's all manipulation. She's a really classically villainous Slytherin secondary. It's clearly evil and slippery and playful in, in ways that are uh, sort of the stereotype. Which is interesting because it's a show that I think is pretty heavy with Slytherin secondaries of really different flavors. Because um, I think Aang's a Slytherin secondary too. But he's not at all villainous in his. No, he's so playful with his Slytherin secondary. He's, it's happy and joyous and generous. He's flighty. Yeah, he's flighty. But it's still that same secondary, which is really, really interesting. There's a really beautiful like diversity of nuance of how they present Slytherin secondary and Avatar. Yeah, especially once we get into Toph. Toph, I, I also being a, a Slytherin secondary, and she just does it completely differently than either Azula or Aang. Yeah, but we see how competent she is in bossing Say when she decides, okay, it's going to be helpful now for me to turn on my class performance. I will go ahead and turn on my class performance. Oh, look, it's perfect because I remember how to do this and I am just able to interact in most contexts. Yeah, and she finds that satisfying. It doesn't feel like a model she built to survive her early life. It's just something she does. And she's like, yeah, this is what you do. Katara, yeah. why are you bothered by this? Yeah, she's like, it's kind of annoying, sure. But, like, it's not a problem. Yeah, and then we also see her utilize that same sort of flexibility and ability to transform in areas of her life she thinks are fun. Like when they're doing all the comms in the Fire Nation. Mm-hmm. Um, but she spends most of her time in sort of the neutral state where she's not putting on anything she's just like whatever which is also a slytherin secondary thing it is it's great and it's it's instead of adapting it's just calling it like she sees it it's she could use the information that she's you know learning from everything around her that she would usually use to inform her improvisation and instead she could just point at it bluntly and say well that's dumb and it's, it's, she's just existing. She's not, it's, it looks a bit like a Gryffindor secondary, which is somewhat confusing, right? Because Gryffindor secondaries are our sort of forthright, honest, direct, blunt house. But Slytherin secondary has this thing, which we call the neutral state. Because um, Slytherin secondary is normally a really adaptive, flexible house. But when they're feeling comfortable, or they're feeling they don't have to do things, they just drop a lot of that 
play and a lot of that work they're doing, and they just are. And what makes it different from a Gryffindor secondary is they don't feel obligated to that honesty. You know, they don't feel like they have to be themselves, and that's part of their, their self and their power, is to have integrity and to act as they are. It's just that when they don't give a shit, they don't give a shit, and then they're just there. And they're fine. Yeah. And that's that's the neutral state for the Slytherin secondary. It definitely reminds me of the idea of being comfortable with uncomfortable silences. And Toph's just so confident and okay. And she has sort of, in some ways, very minimal ambitions as a person. She wants to um, brawl sometimes. She wants to see the world. Uh, she wants to make Sokka squawk. Um, <laughs> and, like, she doesn't really... She's pretty fine. There's nothing she's really chasing after the way a lot of the other characters do. And there's not much she's really afraid of. But she gets to just live in this neutral state all the time where she's just really comfortable and she's just not performing at all. But she's still a Slytherin secondary because, A, she doesn't feel obligated to the honesty that a Gryffindor secondary would, who also kind of looks blunt. But also because we see her step into that flexibility and adaptation and even manipulation just easily and comfortably and without any angst in her soul you know it's not a model that she's covering her true self up with it's just what you do so that kind of brings up an interesting question which is if she is to to some extent not in a not in a bad way but she's a little bit along for the ride she's there because she's teaching ang earthbending i think she's also there because she's excited about the idea of going on an adventure and seeing the world. Um, so what does that say about her primary? Because on one hand, she's, I don't, I don't really get a loyalist vibe from her. Um, I guess I could see a very chill loyalist house, either Slytherin or Hufflepuff, but there's nothing specifically pointing to that. It seems more like it's, um, it seems like an internal primary because I don't see her really looking outside for any of it. So do we think it's maybe Gryffindor? I definitely agree she's an internal primary and not an external one. Because yeah, she, whatever her morality is, whatever her drive is, she gets it from inside herself. She does not care what anyone else thinks, people or society or any of that. She's just like, I'm, I'm right. But yeah, our two, our two internal houses being Slytherin or Gryffindor, it's sort of a hard call because whichever one it is, she doesn't, she's chill. Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't really, if she's a Slytherin, her parents aren't in her Slytherin. No. Um, if she's a Slytherin, no one was in her Slytherin when they first met her. Mm-hmm. You know, it might be that the gang later grows to be and she builds those sort of bonds with them, I think is possible. If she's a Gryffindor, she is a Gryffindor who doesn't care about a lot. Her internal gut, her internal sense of morality and justice does not ping on a lot of things. You know, she's not Cora. No. To use an in-universe example. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, but you have Gryffindors like that, like Jane Cobb from the Firefly series. He's a Gryffindor. He just doesn't give a shit. His main morality is like, I'm good. Okay, whatever. And that's still, that's still a Gryffindor because he's still driven first and foremost by what he thinks is right. It's just, there's not a lot of right and wrong that inherently matters to him. Yeah. And if she's a Slytherin, then I think mostly she's in her Slytherin. And then Mm -hmm. she also likes other people sometimes. I would think that by the end of the series, the gang is probably in her Slytherin. Like, she does definitely grow closer to them. Yes. You know, and value and worry about them. Um, But that could just be friendship. People who aren't Slytherin also have friends. It's true. (laughs) Thank goodness. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um... Are there any points where she's really driven into a corner where she has to, like, make decisions between conflicting options? I think part of the problem might just be that Toph isn't given many places where her her choices are really challenged. I think you're right. Like, I can't think of many. I mean, she decides to leave home and travel with them, but that doesn't actually give us data one way or the other. It just tells I us think, that if she's a Slytherin, yeah. her parents aren't in her Slytherin. Yeah, though she does... Remembering that episode, she does seem to like them, her parents. Yeah. Only she doesn't like her parents. She does seem to value them. And so that kind of pushes me towards Gryffindor for her. Because it's not that she didn't care for them. It's just that when it went to... I want to leave and see the world versus you don't want me to. The place she fell where she suddenly felt really satisfied and free was, I'm going to do it anyway. It's more important to follow my heart than to listen to you and to keep you happy. Which that seems pretty Gryffindor primary. It's just divorced from like justice or ideals, which is fine. That's still Gryffindor. Yeah. And I think that also explains why we don't see anything specifically Slytherin about her relationships with the rest of the gang. That we don't we don't notice any point at which she's like, ah, yes, you're in my inner circle now. But this other person is not. It seems to be so much more of a continuum of affection and not really intrinsic to her decisions or even how she treats people. Okay, so Gryffindor. Gryffindor Slytherin. I kind of want to go back to Aang a bit and talk about his Slytherin secondary. Yes. That's sort of our third Slytherin secondary example. Yeah, I would like that. We did a bit skip over him to get to Toph. Um, well, Toph is great. Yeah. That was extremely fair. It's true. Um. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's interesting, too, um, because when Aang is learning how to uh, earthbend, he and Toph just don't see eye to eye at all. Yeah, even though they're both using their Slytherin secondary for their bending, you know, he's flexible and he's avoiding obstacles and he's, you know, reacting to everything. He has this really fluid way he earthbends and it gives him a lot of power to just kind of be a step ahead. I think we see that most whenever he fights with Zuko um, because they're both really active fighters and Aang is just running circles around him. It's very Slytherin secondary, but so is how Toph earthbends. Yeah, the way Toph earthbends is very much from her neutral state. It's very much from her just acknowledgement of reality and deciding what it is and kind of telling telling the metal or the earth what to do. Um, it's so straightforward and blunt in this really elegant way. I love Toph a lot. Yeah, without being chargy, right? 
Yeah, no, it's not chargy. It's so chill. Yeah, we we talk sometimes about Gryffindor secondaries are the unstoppable force, right? They move, they act. And Slytherin secondaries in their neutral state are the immovable object. Once you get a Slytherin secondary down to their neutral state, where they're not, you know, feigning and dodging and reacting the way Aang does, they're just solid. Because there's a lot of sort of self-knowledge and self-comfort and self-awareness in a Slytherin secondary. It's part of why a Slytherin secondary feels comfortable, you know, adapting and putting all these other faces and acting all these ways that maybe aren't inherently who they are. You know, that thing that drives Gryffindors crazy because the Slytherin knows who they are. So what does it matter what they act like? Yeah. And so when you get them down to just who they are and they're not acting anymore, you don't have any power <laughs> to change them at that point. No, especially not if they're Gryffindor primary. Especially <laughs> not if it's Toph. Yeah. <laughs> you have no power over yeah. Toph. But I, I do, I think that Aang doesn't learn that lesson. It's not like Aang, you know, gets in tune with his neutral state. Um, that's not the feeling I get. And it's, I don't really get neutral state from him kind of ever. Yeah, that kid is always moving. Yeah. Um, and that's actually, that's that's kind of cool too. And that's something I'm not sure we've called out explicitly, but not all Slytherin secondaries really engage with a neutral state. It was sort of a term we came up with to explain how someone could be a Slytherin secondary when sometimes they just go blunt. Even though that, that still seemed to be where they fit in our system. Um, but it's a it's an option for a Slytherin secondary. It's not like, if you don't do this, that you aren't. Because Aang doesn't. So how do we think he's doing the earthbending then? If he's not paring down to a neutral state to access it the way Toph is. He eventually figures out earthbending kind of at the end of that episode when Sokka's in trouble and yeah. Aang needs to save him. And that's very typical of a lot of when Aang, you know, suddenly gets his shit together after <laughs> a long time of failing to get his shit together. Um, and I think it speaks to his Slytherin primary. Oh, my friend's in danger. Oh, okay, this actually matters then. Yeah, that's really what drives him forward. And so it's like, with earthbending, you need to find a place where you're solid, where you can stand your ground. And Toph does that with her neutral state. But Aang has to use his Slytherin primary, because that's where he's solid. That's where you can't sway him anymore, is on this rampaging moose creature shouldn't kill Sokka. Aang can stand by that. Yeah, that's a very clear, clear decision in his mind. That's a solid mm -hmm. foundation with which he can move rocks. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, because Aang is, it's sometimes a, a controversial sorting, and we've talked about this before, that Aang is a Slytherin primary. Um, I've a, had a lot of people tell us that we're wrong yes. on that. And like, I, I see why. I mean, his job is the avatar. It's to value all people. His goal is to save the world. Um, yeah, right. Those those seem like not terribly Slytherin things. Yeah, he cares a lot about people. He, he likes doing what's right. He likes taking care of people and helping people. It's something that he finds compelling and brings a lot of action. And, you know, he's the protagonist. Yeah, and you also get, he also has a lot of his conflicts, especially his final conflict in the in the finale, wrap around this airbender ideal of pacifism. He cares a lot about these kind of really idealistic questions. 
I'm, I'm a pacifist, I don't want to kill Ozai. And that's a major conflict for him. And that also doesn't seem very Slytherin. No, and there's also, um, we see his big dilemma when he's opening up his chakras to reaccess the Avatar estate. And we spent like several episodes, or possibly just one episode that made a large impression on me, um, <laughs> where, you know, he has to let go of Katara in order to finish opening his chakras and be able to access the Avatar state in the way that he needs to. And at first he says, no, I won't do it, which is very Slytherin. But at the end of the day, he does do it. He lets her go and he makes that decision. Um, and that doesn't seem, that seems like it's him maybe even choosing not to be a Slytherin primary in action. Um, but I think that's one of the things that is kind of cool about our system is that you don't always have to make the decision that would make your primary feel the most satisfied. Yeah, you're, the sorting depends on what you want to do and what makes you feel like a good person or what makes you feel satisfied more than it is what you actually do. So I think, I think Aang is in a similar position as we decided that Lan Shi Chen was in our Untamed episode. Yes. Where he is a Slytherin primary. That's his drive. And we see that a lot. We see it with when Appa gets taken, whenever Katara or Sokka are in danger. You know, that's when Aang suddenly is just running on instinct and doing these major things. Because at the end of the day, he loves his people, you know, his small set of people, and he will just tear things apart to keep them safe. But we also see these really important moments with um, struggling over pacifism and killing Ozai, um, struggling over um, opening his chakras, where he's sort of making other choices. Yeah, to some extent, I think it might be an intellectualizing over the, you know, priorities that he holds closest, because we see a lot with uh, Lan Shi Chen, too, when he, not to, you know, go off on that too much, because not everyone has watched The Untamed, but when he decides that it is better for him to let his little brother be punished instead of, you know, turning up the entire society that's ultimately probably better for everyone right and i think with ang you see something similar where it's ultimately going to be better for everyone if he ends this war the way that he feels is actually right yeah and i think i think those struggles that look like they're not slytherin in ang's case um which is actually different than lan shi chen's i'm realizing because lan shi chen squishes his slytherin because thinks Ravenclaw's probably more ethical, and he kind of thinks he's a bad person. It's complicated. But with Aang, I think they're actually evidence of his Slytherin primary. So we look at the two we talked about, with um, Aang trying to unlock his chakras, and at first refusing to let go of Katara to, be, to gain the Avatar's power. The thing that eventually convinces him to let go of Katara is that he realizes he can't protect them if he's not powerful. So he gives up Katara and his love for her, his connection to her, so that he can save her. Because they, they're in danger, and that's what finally triggers him to make that choice and that sacrifice. It's still a Slytherin motivation. And with the finale, and him struggling so hard over um, killing Ozai and giving up his pacifism, I think it's about Gyatso. I think it's about the Air Nomads. 
his entire world died. You know, his father figure, who he loved entirely, who triggers his first Avatar state explosion, he died, and there's nothing of them left except for Aang. And so he desperately doesn't want to let go of one of his last connections to them, which is their pacifism, which is his father's belief that he trained and raised Aang in. And they're really important to him, I think, not because they're right, or because he's thought about them and decided they're ethical, or because he believes they're ethical, but because they were Gyatso's, and it's the last part of Gyatso that's alive. Yes, 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 yes. That, that thing you just said, yes. Right? And so he's still, he's acting in this Slytherin way. It's more important to keep Gyatso alive than to defeat the Fire Lord and save the world. It would hurt him so much. He might still do it because, you know, Katara's alive, Sokka's alive. But it would hurt him so much to kill that last bit of Gyatso to save the world. And in the same way, it would hurt him. He can't let Katara be hurt, so he has to give her up to open his last chakra. You know, his choices are always at the end of the day about the people he loves. Yeah, and about not betraying them, even betraying their memory. Because I yeah. think I think that's something that was kind of implicit in what you said, but I just want to make it a little bit more explicit, which is I feel like Aang would feel like he was betraying Yatso if he mm -hmm. went against that pacifism. Yeah, and we even see it somewhat in, in Korra, which is where Aang clearly spent his life trying to keep the air nomads alive. Um, you know, and, and he, he succeeded. There's, they're still in the world now. Even though in some ways he doesn't seem very Slytherin primary, I think he is. You also see it a bit in the moments where he gets to be selfish. I'm thinking of the Bato of the Water Tribe episode, where it's for the first time. He's really afraid that Sokka and Katara are going to leave him to go back to their father. That's right, and he hides the letter. He hides the letter. It's, that was one of the first episodes that convinced me of both his primary and his secondary. Because he just... It, it felt like sort of the stereotypical sinister Slytherin secondary for the first time, mm -hmm. which helped me sort of reframe all of his playful antics as, oh, that's Slytherin too. You're much happier there. Please stick with that. Um, <laughs> but that's the first tool that falls to his hand. And the thing he feels guilty about is betraying his friends, not lying to them. You know, it's, it's his, his reasons, not his methods that bothered him there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I can't remember offhand other times when he's lied to them to protect them, but I'm I'm sure there were those times, and I'm sure he didn't feel bad about it. Oh yeah, he lies all the time. He's just chill with that. Yeah. It's only when the lying is a betrayal that he's bothered, really. Yes. Um, and it's actually, that that's in, I think, season one. He's a really immature Slytherin early on, and he grows a lot over the seasons in being able to not just want to possess and have people, but wanting to, you know, support and love and protect people, which are sort of different mindsets of the Slytherin primary. You know, he's a, he's a healthier and better friend as he grows. Okay, so those are our three Slytherin secondaries, who all look very, very different in how they perform that secondary. Um, I don't think either Katara or Sokka are Slytherin secondary. No. No, I don't think so. They're bringing some other tools to the table. Yes. Katara is so fiery 
she charges. We see that at the end of season one, or kind of closest to the end of season one. And she's like, no, I will learn waterbending. Like, I feel like she finds such strength in standing up for herself and for others and speaking her truth. She's also really inspirational. There's a bunch of moments where Katara, like, stands on piles of things and, like, shouts. Yes. Like, in the the prison episode, the floating prison with, with the all the captive earthbenders, she, like, starts, you know, a prison riot, you know. And she does that in different circumstances. She has a really strong ability to lead and inspire and act in ways that make the people around her also then be driven to act. She also really does enjoy caretaking. We see those episodes where she's very motherly, but that doesn't seem quite as intrinsic to her. Yeah, so it seems like we're kind of torn for her between Gryffindor secondary, which is forthright and honest and full of integrity and, you know, inspires others by its example, and Hufflepuff secondary, which would be you know, hardworking, dedicated, supportive, um, warm. And I think a lot of people see Katara, especially early on, as a Hufflepuff secondary. You know, she's she's team mom. She does maintain that throughout the season. She very much acts in many ways as sort of a surrogate mom to, to Sokka, even though she's his baby sister. And she's mothering towards a lot of the characters, even Aang, her boyfriend anyway different conversation yep um (laughs) but I think it's a model I think it's what she's supposed to be doing I think it's a model that she got from the water tribe yes I agree because so much of her character arc is in her embracing that desire to stand up and be inspirational um and it doesn't mean that she has to give up her you know caretaking it becomes less important to her it becomes less vital in comparison to standing up for what she believes in she likes caretaking and she will do it it's a good skill and it gives her a lot of good things but at the end of the day katara just really wants to punch a fire nation soldier in the face (laughs) and it's i think it's in that first season you get a really strong arc for katara um specifically about her behavior and her role in a society in a group so she starts out in the Southern Water Tribe, where she's basically the, the little mother, right? And then we end with the conflict with Paku, the waterbending teacher in the North, where she's explicitly told, no, women are supposed to heal and cook and caretake. Men are supposed to punch. And Katara is like, I have discovered I really like punching. <laughs> and I would like to also punch, please. And if you will not let me, I will punch you. Yes. And it works. And she gets to kind of transform and break some barriers there. And she she gets to feel allowed to do that. She's allowing herself to do that. To say, no, I don't care. that This is what I'm supposed to be. That I'm supposed to be, you know, my mother. I'm going to fit here in this space where I want to be. And I'm going to punch things really hard. It brings her a lot of joy. It does. And it's also really interesting how it ties into her her gender performance. You know, it's so gendered explicitly in the show. No, you're supposed to be a Hufflepuff. Uh, Sorry, I'm a Gryffindor. I punch things in the face. Mm -hmm. And we also get this parallel journey that's also gendered 
Asaka. Because he starts out looking like a Gryffindor secondary. He does. He puts on such airs. Yeah, right? He's supposed to be the leader. And he's supposed to be the leader through being, you know, inspirational and brave and powerful. You know, the ways that his father is. And the ways that the men of his tribe are supposed to be. But he's just not that. Yeah, it's not who he is. Which is interesting. Because he is actually a strong leader character. You get that a lot in especially season three. You know, where he's one of the commanders and the strategist, but that's it. He's a strategist general. He's not an inspirational general. He's not a Gryffindor. He's a Ravenclaw. Yes, he is. And watching him build his skill sets is so enjoyable. And we see that even from the earlier seasons, too. Um, we see that in his interaction with the Kyoshi Warriors. He meets them, and he's like, hey, you have a power I don't have. Can I learn it? Yeah, but first he has to fight his own pride. He has to fight his own Gryffindor secondary performance of, hey, ladies, I'm a strong <laughs> man. I can punch stuff. I'm already on top of this. And then they show him that, no, actually, he's wrong. And at first he responds with pride. And it's only after he is really just, like, beaten a lot in sparring that he's willing to come back and accept that it's not his place to be the teacher. It's his place to be student here. Yeah, he sort of gets to, they help him dismantle this story his society has told him about who he is and how he is supposed to act and the sort of pride and power he's supposed to be getting. And it gets to move him to this place of humility where he's finally able to learn, which is what he's good at learning and growing and and building new things out of that knowledge just like katara is figuring out the hufflepuff she's told she's supposed to be she doesn't have to be she can actually be the gryffindor that she is the skill set that comes naturally to her um sokka's realizing he doesn't have to be a gryffindor secondary to be a man to be himself you know to be uh useful um, he actually can just be a Ravenclaw secondary. And unlike Katara, Sokka just dismantles the Gryffindor. He doesn't bring it back. Um, which is which is a fun contrast. Katara does like the Hufflepuff. She keeps it around, you know, she keeps, you know, supporting and, and caretaking. It's something that she values, even if something that isn't what she wants to be at her heart. But Sokka just goes straight Ravenclaw, which is really fun. Yeah, because I think he's really Ravenclaw even in the beginning. Like, in the first episode, he's just already struggling with his pride while trying to assure Katara that actually he is the best fisher. <laughs> and he can catch the fish, even as Katara is showing him that she is much more qualified at efficiently catching fish. Yep. But it's still his pride about his skill set that he knows he wants to have, he knows he should have. Yeah, he just needs to get to the place where he's actually capable of learning, you know, and having that humility. Mm -hmm. um, which lets him actually really, really interact with his Ravenclaw. And interesting, Katara is also totally being her Gryffindor secondary self in the beginning. You mm -hmm. know, it's her rage and her need to, you know, set injustices straight and um, yell at her brother that breaks the iceberg, starts mm -hmm. the story, and brings Aang back into the world. You know, her Gryffindor secondary and her 
her allowing herself to be angry at injustices is what kickstarts the story. Yeah, it's a really satisfying gender subversion. Yeah, and I love that the brother and sister get paired gender subversion. Mm -hmm. Because so often, I do feel like we often get stories where it's like, you know, oh, the woman doesn't have to be the caretaker. She can fight, you know. And I like that, A, Katara is still allowed to caretake, even though we establish it's not natural for her necessarily. And I, I love that Sokka gets the parallel journey of you don't have to be that type of manly, shouty leader. Mm-hmm. You can be this type of power instead, and you're still going to get, you know, respect and, you know, interaction. You know, you get to decide what kind of man you want to be. But there's also flexibility and masculinity. Yeah. And the sort of person you can be inside of that gender. Yeah, we get we get an example of, you know, not just his beginning when he's suffering from some toxic masculinity, but also a really great example of, you know, dealing with that and really moving past that and coming into what's a lot more satisfying for him. Mm-hmm. And both in a in a personal way where he's figuring out how he wants to act to be, you know, what it is to be a man in his society. And what it is to be himself, but also how he wants to interact with the people around him of various other genders mm-hmm. and the the power dynamics and the respects and, you know, his transformation of his relationship with Suki from, you know, the very heavy handed, you know, feminism for 11 year olds, uh, Kyoshi Warriors episode, you know, to the Boiling Rock stuff, you mm-hmm. know, where they've come a lot farther and he's a lot more settled and able that interact in that space. And it's, it's a fun time. And a cool thing to see in a kid's show. So that's Sokka and Katara's secondaries. Gryffindor for Katara. The nice Hufflepuff model she keeps. Mm-hmm. Ravenclaw for Sokka. And a Gryffindor model that he does not keep. What do we think about their primaries? I could see either Gryffindor or Hufflepuff for Katara. She's very felt. She doesn't, she doesn't think about it. No. No, she doesn't. It's about her learning to listen to her gut in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Trust but herself. Yeah, it's a lot about about self-trust. Um, I think her, I, I, I'm leaning toward Gryffindor for her. Um, because while people definitely matter to her, we do see a lot of that, no, but this is right. This is wrong. There are ideals here and I care about them. I do feel like all the ideals, though, they're always triggered by people in need directly in front of her. That's true. You know, because she's constantly distracted from their main mission. Oh, that's an excellent point. <laughs> which is, you know, this, this idea of what's right and wrong. To be like, oh, this village, there's a village right here that needs our help. Like with the Painted Lady episode, mm-hmm. where she slows down their quest to go save, you know, the entire world. Because this one village needs help and she saw their suffering. Oh, that's you know. a really good point. Yeah. Right? Because she's always seeing, like, there's an individual suffering, and she's like, hello, you are now my purpose. Mm-hmm. And then she charges at it and punches the evil in the face, because she's a Gryffindor secondary. It's great. Mm-hmm. But I think I think she's a Hufflepuff primary. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, Sokka, I don't think is a Hufflepuff primary. No. He's... He makes decisions. He's, a, he's not a felt house. He's a decided house, I think. He, his morality comes from, like, once he really comes into being a moral person, 
he thinks about things and he makes decisions and then he sticks with them. Um, which leaves us with either Ravenclaw or Slytherin are our two decided houses. Slytherins decide on their people, where their loyalties lie. And Ravenclaws decide on what is right and wrong. They have to assess things and not feel them. Yeah. Of those two, I think Ravenclaw. I do not get Slytherin vibes off of Sokka. Yeah, he does seem to be interacting much more in the ideal space than the loyalist space. Like, he loves people. He loves his sister. Yes. Um, but he's trying to do the right thing. That's what's driving him places. Yeah, he decides that he was wrong about the Kyoshi warriors and changes his mind about sexism in a way that, you know, he spends a lot of time thinking about. Yeah, once he once he realizes, man, I shouldn't be sexist, it's suddenly really important for him not to do that. Then he puts in the work to learn it. And it sticks with him for the rest of the show. And it's very much not a gut decision. His gut is still saying, you know, oh, I bother you called me girl. What? I have to wear a dress. You know, he's interacting with all of these things. And he has very strong gut reactions to everything. But it seems really important to him to put those gut reactions aside and do what is actually right. Yes. Yeah. And that kind of divide where what you feel is right and what you do is a very Ravenclaw way of interacting with that. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So Sokka's a Ravenclaw Ravenclaw then. Yeah. And he doesn't even keep his, his Gryffindor secondary. So he's just straight up Ravenclaw. I'm very happy with it. Sokka. I love him. Yes. Yeah. He's, he's one of my favorites. I, I always love in a magical um, adventure party, the guy with the boomerang, the guy with mm -hmm. the boomerang is almost always going to be my favorite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, so this leaves us with, of course, one of the most uh, important and engaging characters in all of Avatar, Zuko. Yes. We hadn't talked about it at all yet. No. Um, he's one of the most interesting redemption narratives in fiction, I think. They do mm -hmm. a wonderful job. They avoid so many pitfalls that everyone else hits in redemption narratives. Mm -hmm. And they come out with this really, really satisfying character. Who goes from a villain in episode one to not in season three in a way that just feels entirely satisfying and believable. Yeah, they really take their time with it. Um, mm -hmm. They really take us through step by step. There's not a lot of redemption that happens off screen. Yeah, I think showing it all is really important, not making us take it on faith. And then something else that's really powerful about Zuko is they start doing it in season one mm -hmm. he doesn't swap to their side until mid-season three but he's you're starting to see that journey in you know the first few episodes of season one part of that's having ira there to be a sympathetic point of view part of that is setting him up against Zhao all the way through season one where he too is fighting the fire nation um it's setting him up in a position of you know, also being an underdog with being, you know, banished and being, you know, the, the scar from his father, you know, all of that set up. He too is wronged by the actual villain. And part of that is episodes like The Storm, where we get to see his beginnings of a journey to being able to act in a heroic and compassionate way. You know, the things that he is told that he was originally not supposed to do but have, but have always been part of his 
instincts. Because that's why he got banished originally, right? Was protesting the sacrifice of young troops for the cause. Yeah. So that seems... To me, that that sounds very Hufflepuff. It seems like a lot of his morality is changing as his community changes. Yeah, as he sees other people's humanity, it becomes harder for him to stand against them. Like his whole arc in season two, where he's interacting in Bossing Say, and um, and in the Earth Nation in general. Like the Zuku alone episode's amazing. Um, he's meeting people, and he's caring about them and driven to help them in ways that then make him they make it much more of a struggle for him to stick with his father but he still does make that decision at the end of season two she just feels really shitty about it and that's that's interesting too because it it was framed for him as choosing between two different communities very much tied together with two different moral paths and also his whole journey is he wants to go home yeah you know that's the ambition he starts the show with is he wants to go home yeah only then he realizes that home wasn't as good as he thought it was yeah and that more important than him wanting to go home is him wanting to be part of a world that isn't broken yeah and in in the course of him going off and deciding he's going to fight for having a world that's less broken he finds a new family but that wasn't his intention at that point he'd grown out of it it's sort of like how we were talking about ang becomes a more mature slytherin he goes from wanting to possess people and not lose them to wanting to love and protect them zuko goes from wanting desperately to have a community that accepts him to wanting to help the community around him um that's his ambition you know in the second half and that's changing to be a more mature and moral character like that and it, it does seem to be in a very Hufflepuff way is what eventually gives him the original thing that his heart was after which is a home in a community which is that's sweet and it's similar to Katara's Hufflepuff in the way that a lot of the times where he makes those important decisions and those changes it's about the people in front of him it's about choosing to steal the ostrich horse and then it's about helping and learning about the refugees yeah he's his sympathies are triggered by people who are stand in front of him mm -hmm. but it takes him like two seasons to really act on those in a in a more holistic way as opposed to a moment by moment way because he starts off struggling a lot um but yeah i think he grows into to a nice a nice mature hufflepuff primary um what about secondary for him we do see, especially as a kid in Zuko alone, we see him really step up and kind of get shouty. He's very shouty. Um, he's very shouty. Very punchy. Just a very firebendery thing. But he also becomes less so um, as, we, as we go through the show. He becomes a little bit less punchy and a little bit more open to, to listening and to talking things through um, and he finds some humility that doesn't seem to be compatible with his punchiness um, so I feel like if you were Gryffindor secondary then he would have renegotiated his relationship 
with with that kind of of forthright advocacy um, instead of how he actually changes, um, which feels a little Hufflepuff, maybe? Yeah, I think we were talking earlier about how bending was kind of representative of some of the people's primaries and secondaries and how they were sort of implementing them in the real world. And one of the things that, that Zuko learns that's, that's pretty thematically important to him is the lightning bending. And specifically, he has no ability to lightning bend. He cannot trigger lightning. It takes a cold, internal sense of power and certainty that Zuko just does not have, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but he does learn how to redirect it, how to take violence directed at him and take it in and hold it and send it elsewhere where it can't hurt anyone. Yeah. Which is really interesting. It is. And we see him hard work, like doing a lot of hard work um, from the very first episodes, even though it's not, you know, helping him much. But he spends hours meditating. It's just that the meditating doesn't help much. Yeah. And he also, the search for the avatar itself is like, yes. nose the grindstone. I'm just going to slowly scour the world and never give up. Um. No, I think that kind of, that perseverance can be, um, I think both Hufflepuff and Gryffindor are really good at that kind of perseverance, just beating their heads into brick walls until the brick wall goes away. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I do think he might be a Gryffindor secondary still, though. Okay. I think he likes Hufflepuff secondary. I think he might grow that, that model. I think it's what Iroh is. I think Iroh's a Hufflepuff secondary. Mm-hmm. And Zuko learns a lot from him. Um, but I'm thinking about the the dragons who teach him how to firebend better. Yes. Because he was firebending with rage, right? Very punchy. Very, very violent Gryffindor, right? He was he was firebending with rage and he once he leaves his father's domain, he stops being as full of rage and he stops being able to firebend. And so he and Aang go on their field trip to figure out what firebending really is. Oh, and you think that he might start firebending from his primary? I'm, I'm, I'm having thoughts. I think he gets told you don't have to be angry to fight. You don't have to be angry to step up and be brave and powerful and strong and forthright. It doesn't have to come from that place. It can come from a place of love and connection. And I do think that's that's driven by he's now finally got this Hufflepuff that is actively trying to make the world better and is reaching out with love and generosity, right? And that's triggering why he wants to firebend. But I think he might still be firebending with his Gryffindor secondary. Yeah, because he does he does continue to be inspirational yeah i think it's i think it's changing the context in which he's seeing his actions he's not acting out of rage anymore he's acting out of love but his actions are still forthright and honest and blunt and um you know powerful but now he gets to be inspirational and warm and protective and part of an part of an army that's fighting for a good cause and so it's much more satisfying for him 
part of this is I just really want him to house share with Katara. <laughs> I just think they're really good foils because they're definitely both Hufflepuff primaries. Katara's like, the Fire Nation are monsters. They're not people. We can just kill them. It's fine. And Zuko's really like, he's also got that whole, my people are people. And then he's like, oh shit, everyone is people. Yeah, that's true. They both are coming at it from those different perspectives. Katara finds it so difficult to acknowledge Zuko as a human being. Yes, <laughs> which is a wonderful journey. Yes. Um, he His Hufflepuff gets healthy and expansive before hers does, which is really mm -hmm. fun. And I just, I love them as foils. I just, I kind of just really want them to have the same secondary. But it's like their field trip, more so than any of the other field trips that Zuko has in that, that third season, is just really illuminating to how similar they are as people. He looks at her and he looks at her rage and he looks at her desire for revenge and her bitterness and her love and her inability to let things go and says, okay, I get that. I really do. That's, that's an understandable place for you to be at. And the way we deal with that is I take you to the person who killed your mother. And we stand in the rain and we look at him. And I say, do you want to kill him? Because I will let you and I will help you. And that's the thing Katara needed, which Aang does not understand. And Sokka's just, you know, not either. And Toph doesn't care, which is great. I love Toph. But Zuko understands that that was the closure Katara needed, was to look at this man and be like, you hurt me in the worst way I've ever been hurt. You did a inarguably evil act. And you are a person. And I recognize that. And I could murder you in this rain right now. I have the power. And I'm not going to. And it's for me and not for you. And that worked. Zuko's like, yeah. And Katara's like, oh, you are a person. <laughs> and it's, it's a great little journey. And I think it's coming from a place of them being really similar with their love and their rage being so intermingled. Yes, I love that. Um, yeah. And it reminds me of when Zuko, uh, at the end of season three, confronts Azula. Yes. And I don't remember, like, you know, verbatim what he says, but, like, he, he essentially confronts her. And he confronts her in a very honest and straightforward way. That matters to him a lot that he, that he does that. Yeah, and when he confronts his father as well. Yes. The thing that's really satisfying for him that he needed to do was to stand in front of his father and tell him straight on, you hurt me. And you shouldn't have. And you can't hurt me anymore. And I am a good person who deserves to live. Oh, I didn't realize that. I, I'm not sure, like, how, how, how intentionally it was. But that's such a callback to what we just talked about with Katara standing there in front of the person. Oh, you're right. Yeah, they both went and they confronted the person who hurt them most. Yeah. And that person was like, you could kill me. And they were like, yes, I could. But I'm not going to. <laughs> And it's, it's, yeah, there's a, there's a reclaiming of power they needed. And there's a, not forgiveness, but recognition of hurt they really needed to do. And they just have really similar pathways there for their, their childhood hurts. What mm -hmm. they have to do to go confront that. Whereas Aang, Aang did not need to go confront the person who murdered his whole 
society. No, that would that would change nothing for him. You know, Sokka, who was also deeply hurt by their mother's death, by the constant war, by all of that, he also has no need to confront with that. Sokka's moved on. Sokka's thinking about, you know, sexism in society and, you know, how to build flying air balloons. Sokka's satisfied with that kind of building. That's how he lives his life and grows. But Katara and Zuko both had this deep-seated need to go and say what they needed to say and stand where they need to stand and decide what they need to do. It just, it just feels really similar. Oh, I love that they house share. Yes. Yeah, right? It, no, it makes me really happy. And they also both model Hufflepuff Secondary, I think. Yes. I didn't realize Zuko did, but I think you're right that you, you pointed that out. Mm-hmm. I think maybe he burned his Gryffindor after his father burned him. Because that's, that's the thing he did, right? His dad was like, okay, we're going to put all the new kids on the front lines because they can just die and slow stuff down. It'll be fine. And Zuko stood up, you know, in the chambers and said, no, that's wrong. We can't hurt our people. That's bad. But he feels the need to speak out. And mm-hmm. that's what gets him punished, and that's what gets him banished. So it's not what he thinks he should use once he's banished, trying to find the Avatar. He builds this Hufflepuff model instead, because maybe hard work and dedication and grinding himself into the ground will be what lets his father bring him back in. He doesn't think being honest and standing his ground and being brave and good will, you know, get him home. Yes. And then he's able to come back into his Gryffindor secondary once he feels like his feet are on firm ground again. And once he's found his Hufflepuff again in a real way and feels solid with how he's seeing the world and feels like he's moving in the right direction. Yeah. Once his main drive, his main motivation and dream is no longer to get back home, to get his father to let him come back home but to build a better world, he's finally able to lean into his Gryffindor and not rely on what what will father not be mad about. But yeah, so he he starts with a burned Hufflepuff. No, not a burned Hufflepuff. He starts with a Hufflepuff that's, that's driving him in a really narrow way to get back home and to do whatever it takes to get back home. Yeah, it's not a burned Hufflepuff. It's just a small Hufflepuff. Yeah, and he starts with a burned Gryffindor secondary. He's still using it some. It still comes easy to his hand, but he doesn't think it's the right method. Mm -hmm. He's trying to go through these Hufflepuff secondary methods. And over the course of the story, he learns to expand his Hufflepuff primary and make it less selfish in a way. Um, And to lean back in to that Gryffindor secondary and know that being brave and strong and forthright and full of integrity to lead and protect the people around him is what he needs to do and wants to do and is good at doing. I think you even see it in the Storm episode where he turns away from chasing the Avatar to protect his crew. Yes. Yeah, it's a good journey. And I I love that he parallels with Katara. Mm -hmm. That's just really satisfying to me. It is, yeah. I think it's probably one of the reasons why I shipped them so hard when I was a kid watching this show. (laughs) Do you like narrative foils, Kat? What? The narrative foils give you joy. Oh, they do. They really (laughs) do. 
And that's a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about our system, we have a quiz as well as explanatory and other sorting posts at WordPress and Tumblr at Sorting Hat Chats. If you like this episode, consider donating to the National Center for Transgender Equality. And tune in next month to listen to us sort She-Ra and the Princesses of Power.